Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi. Every year we do a Halloween movie show. This is that show. And every year we focus on a particular movie. It's usually a movie that's having some kind of anniversary. This year we're going to talk about a movie that's 50 years old. And also just coincidentally, the man who directed it also died fairly recently. That would be William Friedkin. The movie would be The Exorcist. It's going to seem a little bit weird, but I think about The Exorcist almost as much as I think about the Roman Empire. I mean, I really do think about The Exorcist a lot. I have a lot of theories about it, about why it was as popular as it was when it came out and why it continues to be popular today. I've watched The Exorcist quite a few times, not as many times as Beetlejuice, but I've watched The Exorcist many times and I continue to love it and I don't find it funny. Welcome to our annual Halloween Horror Movie episode. You know, if you've listened to these episodes in the past, or if you even just listen to this show a lot and have taken the measure of me, you probably know I'm not really much of a horror movie person. And usually when we do this episode, I kind of have to force myself to watch something I would not otherwise have watched. I've been looking forward to this year because The Exorcist turns 50. It's by far my favorite horror movie. And it's one I've seen multiple times. I saw it when it came out in 73. I actually have a lot of my own thoughts about it, which is also a little unusual for these episodes. So we're going to tell you later in the show about what's kind of happened to the Exorcist IP, as we say in the entertainment industry, because there, in fact, is a new iteration of it out right now. But first, we're going to have a conversation. I'm not actually going to have the conversation. Someone... Jonathan McPants is going to have a conversation with one of the stars of The Exorcist, one of the people that you really remember when you think about the film. He's somebody who's well known to many of our listeners. He's a political analyst. He's been a a candidate for public office and served in the state government of Connecticut. His name is Bill Curry, and he was in The Exorcist. Yeah, I, I played the devil, actually. It was a huge, meaty, complex role. No, I was... I was an extra in The Exorcist. But I tell you, it goes by quickly. I don't know how long a blink of an eye actually lasts, but it's, you know, it's in that range. And that meant that for parts of three days, I stood outside the main building at Georgetown as part of a student demonstration that was being filmed. I mean, I was just there standing, looking vaguely upset at a demonstration, the point of which was never even made clear in the script. I'm just trying to remember, the demonstration is actually in the movie she's filming, right? It's not like a real... That's correct, that's correct. And it isn't even meant to seem entirely convincing because it's a film within a film. And so it's meant to look a little phony, and in that they succeeded. They posted, everyone who wanted to be an extra, come to uh, Gaston Hall. And they and they posted the amount of money you would be paid. And so the place was freaking jammed. And for whatever reason, you can tell just looking at that crowd that they did not pick the, you know, the hundred best looking people who showed up. 
for whatever motives they had, I was one of the people who they nodded to, and therefore I got the money. My memory is so foggy now. I've told myself for a long time that we were paid $75 a day. That seems so improbable. It might have been $75 for all three days. It was a fortune to be paid at the time. It was two semesters worth of beer money. I basically drank free for my entire sophomore year, which in retrospect might, might not have been a good thing. They did want the crowd to know that we ourselves, we weren't the shouters. The shouters were standing on the steps and we were watching them from the side. And so we weren't angry. We were just concerned. And I think it was a, a really a piece of good fortune because concerned is about the entirety of my of my range. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Say more about that. What was what was the motivation for your character? Well, that we were yeah motivation for my character. Well, he had to be he had to be a person who liked to stand. <laughs> Since that was primarily what I was doing, very into standing. I think. I think it really made the film, you know, if you were quick enough to catch it. Many of my friends have said that they've looked hard at that scene and not found me. And I tell them that you couldn't see the devil either, but he was definitely in the movie. Okay, so. I watched it fairly recently. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, this is the most I've ever liked this film. I disliked the genre so much, I didn't quite give the film a chance. And in retrospect, it's exceedingly well made, very well acted, and often even well written. Friedkin really was a genius at what he did. If I'd been in Nightmare on Elm Street, I might not have told anyone, okay? But since it was The Exorcist, every so often I drop it at a dinner party. This movie, which came out, I believe, the day after Christmas here in the U.S., think about that for a second, but it was an enormous, enormous hit. It still is an enormous hit if you adjust for inflation here in the U.S. It has the ninth biggest box office number of all time. Horror movies never do that. The next closest movie, I think, is The Sixth Sense, and it's probably like the 73rd biggest box office. So there's a, a big fall off. But right now, let's, well, let's go back to 1973 and talk about what this movie was. Joining us to do that is Ashley Clark, a screenwriter and director and lecturer in film studies at Queen's University in Belfast. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. There is a way in which this film, Ashleen, tapped into a lot of stuff. It kicks some, some tripwires. I mean, it's a very well-made, very interesting film with really good actors in it. But there was more than that going on. I think you and I both believe that. So say what you think is going on. Well, I'm, I've always, like yourself, it's one of my favorite horror films in my top two for sure. And I saw it first when I was seven years old, I think, which was far too young to see a film like this. <laughs> but I come from a Catholic family. I'm the youngest. There are several above me. So by the time my parents got to me, like uh, standards had maybe relaxed a little bit. I don't know. But I'd, it captivated me from from there on out. And I've thought about it a lot over my life. I think it, it came at a at a specific time in American culture, which also, as we know, radiates out all over the world. It was a massive hit here too, people queuing around the corner and all that. And I think it came at a time when people were beginning to question their trust in systems, in, in government, 
in the legal system, in everywhere. And The Exorcist, this is essentially what it's about. It's about doubt and questioning. I people, I think people tend to make the mistake of thinking that it is about faith in a religious sense because we have those central priest characters and we have a demon at the heart of it. But I think it's actually more, far more universal than that. And it's keying into something that is a fear and insecurity that is universally human and that goes underneath any belief system, any ideology. And this is why it's why it hit a mark at the time and why it's stuck around to this day. Yeah, I I would differ a little bit about this. I'd love to just sort of go back and forth a couple of times. So there was, I think, right around 1969 here in this country, a scholarly writer named Philip Reeve published a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And his argument in that book was that, you know, one of the precipitates at the end of the counterculture of the 1960s, in which the counterculture here in America kind of became the main culture, was the total removal of religion, faith, supernatural explanations as a way of understanding the world and human behavior to be replaced by what he called the therapeutic, the heirs of Freud. And we were going to stop thinking the way that we thought for centuries and centuries, and we were going to start thinking in this very psychoanalytic way about the nature of humanity. He, as kind of a conservative cultural critic, didn't like this idea very much. But I actually think one of the things that The Exorcist does is tap into what now maybe could be considered an almost atavistic belief in the supernatural, in religious issues. Because you're watching Chris McNeil, Ellen Burstyn, she's got a kid who's got problems, and she's doing what any parent in the 1970s would do. She goes to psychiatrists and neurologists and, you know, psychotherapeutic hypnotists. Well, it's a symptom a type of disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain. In the case of your daughter in the temporal lobe, it's up here in the lateral part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations, and usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion. The shaking of the bed, that's doubtless due to muscular spasms. And everybody in the audience, because they know the name of the movie, is going, don't, don't do that. She needs an exorcist, which is, of course, not what people would have been saying normally in the 1970s. So I sort of wondered whether it was almost a nostalgic evocation of something that maybe was still bubbling down under the apparent less religious, non-religious rationality that seemed to be kind of winning the tide in the early 1970s. I think it is kind of a movie about faith or at least the suspicion that maybe we haven't been told everything by the psychiatric establishment. I think the one of the reasons why I think and I don't think it's an it's an anti-faith in a religious sense movie. I don't think it's like that. I mm. think it's a movie that is about faith in a in a broader sense which which can encompass religious faith also but it isn't only about that or and it doesn't have to be about that it's almost like it's about faith in a kierkegaardian sense mm-hmm. where it's about taking action so as human beings we're kind of like i sometimes describe us we're like we are animals but we're animals who learned how to figure skate and we learned how to make rockets you know so our ability to contemplate ourselves makes us unique as far as we're aware amongst the other animals And I think what the exorcist is getting at is the fundamental universal fear that self-doubt, everyone experiences, you know, imposter syndrome, self-doubt at times. And without the courage and curiosity that is intrinsically human, we would achieve nothing. None of the things that we've achieved that have been great and beautiful 
would have been achieved if we give in to doubt. And I think that's essentially at the heart of it. So I, I think it can take a lot of different shapes and it, and it does in the movie too, but essentially that's what it's getting at. And I think it's interesting that you reference psychoanalysis because as you say, they try psychoanalysis. They try, they do everything that a progressive modern parent would do at the time. And eventually she turns to faith, Thank just in, in desperation, she turns to priests because there's nothing else left. If, um, if a person is, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they how do they get an exorcism? Well, the first thing I'd have to get them into a time machine and get them back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. Oh, yes, since when? And Father Karras is this perfectly liminal figure. He's a priest and a trained psychiatrist. He is like a manticore or something. He's kind of a fusion of both of those worlds. And his feet are more firmly planted at the beginning of the movie in that psychiatric world. I mean, he has a hard time buying this idea that there's any such thing as an exorcist, and he sees this as a clinical problem until he's forced out of that mindset. I think that's significant too. But, you know, speaking of what you said about we're animals, we can figure skate or figure out how to figure skate or build rockets. There's a scene in this movie that you zeroed in on, I think very correctly. It's a scene where Ellen Burstyn, who's an actress who's making a movie in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., is having a party with anybody else who's really interesting, who happens to be around at that time. And one of those people is an astronaut and who's, I guess, maybe about to go into space. And so Regan wakes from sleep, walks downstairs the way sleepy kids might do, roused by the noise of a downstairs dinner party. But she looks at the astronaut and says, you're going to die up there. And then she pees on the floor. So it's significant somehow that this is an astronaut. It's, you know, he, he's, he's, not yeah. a foot, he's not a football player. So say how it's significant to you. Well, as a child, as I, I say to you, I saw this movie first when I was seven years old. And there was two things I was super into. One of them was horror movies. And the other one was space travel, astronauts, all that. And from the very first time I saw this film, that scene really chilled me to my core. And I've been returning to it over the years and thinking, why is that scene scare me more than anything else about this film? And I think it's because at, at this time in the 70s, when this movie came out, space travel had already been around a bit. It had been like the big dream of the 60s and so on. This is the, the final frontier of mankind. You know, this is us really going out in a limb and literally stepping off into space. Listen, if you ever go up there again, will you take me along? It encapsulates the courage and the curiosity, the sense of exploration, the intrepid kind of human soul that is so essential and universal to everything that we do that's great, everything that we can achieve, all of our hope for the future, our hope in ourselves as mankind. And I think it's because the demon questions that. So they're crucially, they're in the middle of a party. Everybody's really happy. And then it's this reminder of the potential for a cold, unfeeling universe that doesn't care about us, that we're not important to, that just makes it so effective. Yeah, and I think it's also the past speaking to the present. I mean, there, we're told, particularly when Father Marin gets there, there's just kind of one demon. This demon's been around forever and goes back to, you know, ancient, ancient Iraq and things like that. And so this is a demon saying to the present moment, you think you're in control of this process. You think you can use technology and human effort to slip the surly bonds of Earth, but you're going to die up there. I'm a demon. I'm telling you that. And I, to me, it's kind of an ancient, primordial almost past speaking to the present. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And the fact that the demon, you know, urinates on, on the rug as well, you know, it's using the human body of this host child and it's reminding us of our animal nature. So it's the astronaut, the kind of the high end of science and exploration and intrepid human nature versus the reminder that you are a core and animal. I think that's at the heart of the moment. Hey, I, I think we've got a guest. You're gonna die up there. Reagan? Lately, I've been thinking a lot about another moment. It's when the older priest, Father Marin, gets there, played by Max von Sydow, and he has more experience with this. And initially, the young Father Karras wants to tell him a little bit about his psychiatric assessment of what seems to be happening and how many different personalities there are and things like that. And, and Marin says, no, you don't have to tell me about that. I already know who's there. But then he says this really interesting thing. It's the most psychologically sophisticated thing anybody in the movie says, and it's said by the old, not particularly psychologically oriented priest. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us. But he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful. So don't listen. Remember that. Do not listen. See, Ashleen, that's really stayed with me because it's actually true about... It's something that not very nice, just regular flesh and blood people do. If they want to tell you a really hurtful lie, they mix in just enough truth so that you're seduced by it and you can't necessarily shrug it off. I found that to be a very subtle statement in a movie that's about some pretty garish issues. Yeah, and it's also the classic tactic of the con artist, isn't it? <laughs> that you mix in a bit of truth with the lies and that's how you get into someone's head, really, and control them. So this is a favorite movie of priests. Not surprisingly, I mean, they absolutely are, are the heroes of this. They're the ones who show up and really know what to do. But does it surprise you that 50 years in, I mean, I watched this movie recently and I kind of know most of its moves already. I was amazed at the amount of power that it still has. Is that just great William Friedkin filmmaking or is, I don't know. I mean, why, yeah, why do you think it, it hangs in there so well? I, I think it's definitely William Friedkin's brilliant filmmaking. And that's definitely a big part of it. But I think it's because it is at its core a universally human story. So Friedkin was a, an agnostic Jew. He's, he wasn't Catholic. It's not, I don't think the film is intending to to be flying the flag for Catholicism in particular. I think it's the fact that it keys into that. And this is why it works. And no other demonic possession film has ever come close to The Exorcist. And it's because it's saying something that is fundamentally, that we intuit as fundamentally true about humanity, about being human, and about one of our biggest fears, which is self-doubt. Self-doubt is absolutely, can be absolutely paralyzing and crippling for all kinds of facets of our lives and it can really impede progress in in all respects so having the courage to sweep aside self-doubt is something that is absolutely crucial to humanity's success and i think we feel that on an individual level and a collective level and i think that's why it still resonates I should say, I'm ashamed to say that I have not actually seen your movie about Priest making a movie about a pretty dire situation. But you want to just tell us a little bit about it? I, I looked it up. It looks like I can stream it. Yeah, it's called The Devil's Doorway. And 
you can stream it in various places and it's essentially a found footage film which kind of gives it a, a bad rap a lot of people don't like found footage films but it's very different to anyone you've seen before it's period set in 1960 it's shot on 60 millimeter film and it, it really i'm trying to grapple with philosophical ideas in this film too so yeah maybe of interest if you're into that kind of thing absolutely well ashley and clark thank you so much for your time today um we'll take a little break we'll come back Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So in the first segment, we talked about the original Exorcist movie, which is celebrating, if that's the right word, its 50th anniversary this year. But the story just keeps on going. And there is a brand new iteration of the Exorcist franchise, if that's also the right word. I think that's kind of debatable, maybe. And the person best equipped to debate it is our guest right now. Jesse Hessinger is a writer for GQ and other outlets. He's the associate editor of Paste Movies, and he co-hosts the New Flesh Horror Movie Podcast. Jesse, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what we've got now is a a movie called The Exorcist Believer. First of all, just walk us through the twists and turns that this IP has gone through since 1973. You don't have to name every single damn movie, but there's there's been a lot of them. (laughs) Of course, the original in 1973 was a massive, massive hit. It's really weird to think about how this was like a Godfather slash Star Wars level blockbuster Mm -hmm. in its day. And so, of course, there was a sequel, but... Things were not the sequel machinery was not you know necessarily in place. I don't think with the same speed and efficiency that it is now. There wasn't a sequel ready to go. But four or five years later, there was a, a second film called Exorcist II: The Heretic. There was a third one that came out in 1990, where the um, author of the original book, William Peter Blatty, made the movie himself. And then there was another. So there was another long lull, and then they decided to try to do a prequel to it in the early 2000s. And that was it. You know, so it was really a very occasional thing. About every 10, 5 to 10 years, someone would take a crack at an Exorcist movie. And this new one is by David Gordon Green, who did the recent trilogy of Halloween sequels. And supposedly the idea was to follow a similar tactic. Say, okay, we're going to forget all those other sequels. Not that anyone particularly remembers them, but if you do, forget them. (laughs) And we'll start off with a, a sequel to the original only. This is a direct sequel, supposedly, to the original film and was supposed to kick off a trilogy of movies that are you know, all function as sort of a a long sequel to the beloved original, much like 
the three Halloween movies recently did for the original Halloween. They also ignore many years of many sequels. There's many more Halloween sequels that needed ignoring in this case. The Exorcist, you really don't need to ignore the sequels because they don't really change anything about the original. But this one only really concerns itself to the extent that it's really concerned at all with that first film. Right. We see, in this case, it takes place in suburban Georgia. We see two young girls, one black, one white. They go out into the woods. They come back. They're clearly not themselves anymore. They've got a big problem on their hands. And so they do, the parents do what any parents would do. They, they look at the situation. They say, you know what we need? We need an 89-year-old woman with a SAG-AFTRA <laughs> card to come in here. I may not have witnessed the exorcism, but I sure as all hell witnessed the possession. I spent the next 10 years trying to understand what I saw with my own eyes. I studied every culture, every religion, every ritual for it I could find. So, Jesse, Ellen Burstyn is, as of today, 90 years old, I believe. (laughs) And somehow or other, I guess it had something to do with some kind of scholarship she was going to get funded or something. She agrees to come back as the person who gets called in all those years ago, 50 years ago. Her daughter, Regan, is the first person possessed in this intellectual property. So (laughs) say a little bit about that and kind of you really think this movie does work. It kind of earns its keep. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I do think it, it's it's interesting to me and it does. I do think it works after a fashion, I would say it works. But what something that doesn't really help the movie, frankly, all respect to Ellen Burstyn, is this weird connection to the original film via Ellen Burstyn, who, yes, as you say, plays Regan's mom. And, and in this movie, the idea is that she has experience with this. So they go to her and she's written a book about it. So she's sort of, you know, maybe the, even the book is supposed to be kind of old. But so she sort of has a, you know, she's back in the day. Yeah. Someone wrote a book about this. And she actually dri- um, she drives up to the hospital with a car and the bumper sticker says, ask me about my possessed yeah. grandchildren. Yes. <laughs> my, yeah. <laughs> My possessed, she has a hundred percent record of getting her daughter back from demonic possession, so that she has that to boast of. Yeah, she. I mean, Burson is just is one of the is a great actress, an all time great actress. If you haven't seen the movie she did after The Exorcist, Alice doesn't live here anymore, an early Scorsese movie. She's so good in it. She's amazing. Loved seeing her in, in a movie. But this movie, it's so bizarre that they went through such great pains to get her back because she's always said she hasn't been interested. She's turned down past Exorcist sequels and she turned down this one and they offered her some more money and she turned it down again and they offered her some more money. And she said, well, wait a minute, maybe I can get a, I guess, a scholarship running at a particular college for acting. And she was able to get them to fund it. And presumably, I, I think she was probably paid also. So she'd agreed to do it. And in the movie, she's. It it definitely bears out that reluctance that uh, that she's in the movie for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And what's stranger, though, is that it doesn't even feel like the filmmakers particularly needed or wanted her back so much as someone, a producer or someone was like, we got to get someone from the got to get Ellen Burstyn. She's the one people are going to want to see, which I think is strange as much as I love her as an actress, because... She is terrific in the movie. I would just wonder whether audiences now, even those more familiar with the movie, would think, oh, okay. oh man, here it comes. Ellen Burstyn coming back. You know, like that's such an emotional <laughs> story in that yeah. movie. 
why would they care if she's back to see someone else's daughter get possessed? Like, the thing is, I actually did really like this movie in a lot of ways. And I like Ellen Burstyn. And I don't even think her scene, it's not that her scenes are bad in the movie or anything like that. It's just that the idea of this as a legacy sequel that's going to, you know, like the way that Halloween brought back the iconic Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis, whoever remembers as the kind of original final girl in that movie. I don't think it's the same effect here. And I don't think their killer can be the same effect. I think The Exorcist is so much more... So, so much a different experience than something like Halloween, which I love. I love both, uh, you know, Halloween's a great movie and Exorcist is, is a great movie, but it's not really the same thing to bring back The Exorcist after 50 years. And I think what's interesting about this film is much more what the director, David Gordon Green, who did those Halloween movies and did a lot of indie movies, has done some big comedies. He did Pineapple Express. He did All the Real Girls. It's an astonishing range of movies he's done. The movie's most interesting for what he brings to it. And sort of getting his perspective on this very tired subgenre of the Exorcist movie. But I think Green finds interesting ways into that material that I kind of wasn't expecting as, as someone who does, who sees a lot of horror movies and goes, oh man, Exorcist movies are just not my favorite because what, you know, it's any other subgenre that I feel like there's a, you know, there's a lot of different slasher movies you can point to as really good ones. You can say, well, Halloween does it differently than Psycho, which does it differently than Texas Chainsaw. Exorcist, what are the other great Exorcist movies? I mean, there's not really any of them that I can think of besides the freaking original. Yeah. And so I'm wondering also if you could say a bit about how David Gordon Green earns your praise and your faith. He's transferred it to a kind of a different milieu. And, and I'm wondering about the significance of kind of interracial <laughs> co-possessees, yes. whatever we're going to call them, you know, and, and then two different sets of parents. I think yeah, Leslie, yeah. Leslie Odom is actually a, a widowed father. And this is all happening in suburban Georgia. Maybe not totally incidental is the fact that, you know, here in IRL, Georgia is in the process of turning pretty purple, if not turning blue. There's a yeah. sense of cultural change. And I think horror often feeds off of or doubles down on cultural change. So give me your take, you know, put it in that context for me. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's a great point about Georgia. It's a perfect kind of mix of high-minded ideas and also very Hollywood ideas, which is Georgia gives a lot of tax credits. And it's like the movie kind of has both of those things going <laughs> I'm so on. so like, innocent. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> no, no, well, it is. It's it's mercenary in that sense, but it also connects back to David Gordon Green, who uh, some of his older movies have were set. He's had definitely done movies set in the South and he's had at least one movie set in sort of, oh, I think it's Undertow might be that's set in part of kind of a rural area of Georgia. So it's also as much as it's, you know, sort of mercenary also is, yes, it's an area he knows well. And I think he does pay attention a lot to a lot of that stuff. I think what struck me about most about the movie and Green's approach to it is that he's just got a great, I think, eye for kind of details of kind of everyday life. And as the movie's setting up before these girls disappear into the woods and, and get possessed, He's just got a great eye for both sort of these kind of little moments of joy. There's little very sweet moments between Leslie Odom and his the little girl playing his daughter. And between the, these two girls who are sort of new friends at school who are excited to go hide in the woods and do sort of a sleepover style seance thing. And there's these kind of moments of intimacy between them that are very sweet. We light the candle and hold the pendulum and ask the spirit yes or no questions about angels and demons and devils and pastors and saints. Lions and tigers and bears and stuff. <laughs> Watch this. But also there's these little flashes of kind of unrest or sort of hostility almost that he doesn't really overplay, but they have their neighbor played by Ann Dowd, for example, who becomes a bigger figure in the story. You first see her sort of crabbing at them to 
move in their garbage cans with these left on the curb too long. You know, the garbage came this morning. You haven't brought them back in yet. And they're in a rush and have to go to school. And it's just a minor detail. You know, a lot of movies might introduce a character like that, initially making her seem like an antagonist before she later helps them with the possession. But he just has such a great eye and ear, I think, for these kind of little moments between neighbors and between, you know, people who inhabit the same space that can be, I wouldn't even say call them microaggressions or anything like that, but there's just like a little bit of a testiness. Hey, Mr. Fielding. Mr. Fielding, you're going to leave your trash cans out here all week? So you just take the cans and you drag them down your driveway. Nice to see you, too. Got to bring them in, huh? And I think he captured that very well, perhaps better, in in, in the Halloween movies in the town of Haddonfield, in terms of, you know, these little kind of moments where there's moments of tension, but also moments of togetherness. And throughout the movie, I just think he has a great eye, especially in the setup, for what it, you know, what it means for these two girls whose parents don't know each other to go missing together. There's one set of white parents and then a black single father. And again, nothing that none of that is really stated exactly in that there is tension, but it's derives kind of naturally from the situation. But there is sort of a subtext or undercurrent of, again, it's not even a movie necessarily about racial tensions, but there is a kind of feeling of the unknown. I I don't know this girl. I don't know you, you know, sort of these kind of little fractures in our community. And I feel like the movie, this sounds very corny. And maybe I think some people are reacting to this corniness. And I I, I agree, it's it's potentially corny. The movie ultimately is sort of, I think Green is trying to use this exorcism thing, which in the past has been very tribally identified with Catholic, as a a weirdly unified experience. The the exorcism that eventually has happens in the movie is not from a single Catholic priest or, you know, in the first movie, it's two priests, but the, this one religion that can help, you know, save this, this girl from demons. It's this sort of coming together of the community. And it doesn't, that's not to say, it, you know, it ends with them all around a campfire seeing Kumbaya or anything, but it, it does have a kind of almost an idealism, I would say about, what you need to do to stand up when there's something like this happens in a community and how you are able to get through it and how we're able to support each other or in some cases not support each other. It's not as, you know, it's cut and dry to sort of, oh, we just all need to stick together and everything will be great. But I do think Green is interested in the way that communities react to these sort of stressful situations. That's there in one of his early movies, Snow Angels, which I really dearly love. That's there in All the Real Girls. I think that's there in something, you know, a lot gnarlier, like Halloween Kills is very much about how a community reacts to a very extreme situation. All right, Lonnie, listen, the only way we're going to stop this is if we all come together on this. Yeah, goddamn right. All right. All right. You guys are coming too. Couldn't let you have all the fun. So many victims in our neighborhood. Close friends of ours, and we just want to help out. I'm a doctor, my husband's a nurse. You coming with us? Let's see what you got. Michael Myers has haunted this town for 40 years. Tonight we hunt him down. And that's the stuff in Exorcist Believer that I felt was really interesting. And it feels like it's of a piece to me with his other films. That's kind of all I'm looking for when I'm watching a David Gordon Green horror movie. It's like, okay, how does this fit into his interests and his style and all that? And I think this movie doesn't work great as a horror movie. It's not going to keep anyone up at night, I don't think. But as a parent, too, I, I was watching it going, yeah, there are some fears that this is capitalizing on, as the first one does, of too, of course. But Green does find a sort of new angle on what it feels like to not know your kid's friend and for you know what it would feel like if your kid went missing with another another kid and the weird dynamics that would create in, in the community and with the other parents. 
So I just found it interesting, maybe more interesting than scary, but but <laughs> interesting in that way. <laughs> so we should say we're actually recording this conversation. I think it's October 17th today, but don't hold me to that. The Exorcist Believer is the number two box office movie in the country. Saw 10, which you say is arguably the, the best in, in the whole Saw series, is number four. So it's not as though people aren't coming out to see this kind of movie. The question is, is it a subculture that is sort of getting fan service over and over again of various kinds. I'm sure whoever said, get me Ellen Burstyn or I'm not making this movie was thinking, I wonder if I could get the mainstream to come back the way they did in 73. Oh, for sure. They're always hoping that's, that they're going to have a, a, an exorcist movie as big as the original. And I'm sure Halloween, the 2018 one doing very well, convinced them it's possible. We could do it. We could have a movie that's a really, really big hit, not just a sort of niche horror hit, which I think is what the other exorcist movies were at best. You know, they, they got the horror crowd to come out, but maybe not the kind of mainstream crowd. You know, there's I would say there's a bunch of different audiences for horror movies in a really interesting way. Like there's there's sort of the, you know, regular moviegoers who might sample a horror movie and I think are maybe more likely to check out an exorcist movie than a Saw movie because the Saw movies have that kind of, you know, torture porn fan. Yeah, yeah. They have that reputation as being kind of hard to endure. And also, like, if it, it is borne out, even if you can take the gore, this movie's have gone 10 movies and have all this continuity. And it's, it's this one is not, the new one is not hard to follow, but it would be hard to follow Saw 7 or 8, you know, if you hadn't seen the other ones. So there's that sort of mainstream audience that I do think will come out for the, a certain thing. I think that seemed to come out for Halloween in 2018 because that that made much more than a normal, horror, even a normal hit horror movie. And then there's the sort of hardcore horror people who they won't see necessarily any horror movie, but they are much more able to be excited about a new horror sequel, a new horror franchise, a new a new horror standalone movie, and are kind of attracted by that sense of transgression, that sense of like, this could be something you're not supposed to see, which both Saw and The Exorcist really did trade on. I mean, The Exorcist, I was not alive in 1973, but my understanding is it was really felt like it was something kind of otherworldly for a lot of people in terms of stuff they were not, you know, previously allowed to have have seen on the big screen. And Saw is not, not that galvanizing at all, but it does have a kind of, you know, some part of the kick is feeling that it's like kind of a transgressive, like, ooh, this is extreme. You know, if you're like looking for something a little more messed up than your average, you know, uh, <laughs> horror thriller, like Saw, Saw can provide that. And it's so interesting to see a 10th Saw movie kind of bringing people back into the folds about, you know, with the l- less of the promise of this is really extreme because there's been 10 of them. How much more extreme could this one be? And more in this sort of almost nostalgic Oh, remember the jigsaw killer from Saw? Like he's your, your old pal, the jigsaw killer is back. Isn't that going to be a nice reunion with with this guy who makes torture devices? <laughs> well, uh, on that uplifting note, we're going to have to stop. But uh, Jesse Hessinger, uh, writer for GQ and other outlets, the associate editor of uh, Paste Movies and co-host the New Flesh Horror Movie Podcast. All right, Jesse, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's take a little break and then we'll come back. Before we go further, time to thank some people, including Kat Pastors, our technical producer, every day. At least it's a good day if she's our technical producer. And the producer of this episode is Jonathan McPants. So we're going to switch gears a little bit, as they say. Joining us is uh, Rachel Kurzius, reporter for The Home You Own at The Washington Post, to tell us about a phenomenon. The phenomenon has a name. That name is Skelly. So first of all, Rachel, welcome to our show. 
Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. So for people to whom the name Skelly does not seem to mean anything, explain who Skelly might be. Happy to. So if you don't know the name Skelly, you've still probably seen Skelly around. Skelly is the 12-foot skeleton that is a now famous Halloween decoration that debuted in 2020 and has really since taken Halloween decorations by storm and really changed the scale of what we think about when we think about a large decoration. As the folks from Home Depot tell me, when they imagined Skelly, they imagined two six-foot people stacked on top of one another. That was the impact, the height impact that they wanted to get from Skelly. And I think it's safe to say that they definitely succeeded in that front. Go big this year with the 12-foot giant skeleton with Life Eyes technology. This massive skeleton has a lifelike texture and is semi-posable thanks to its hinged shoulder joints and its haunting lifelike eyes that move and blink will thrill and delight. Now, to say that this is popular would be almost to understate the situation. Home Depot has a lot of trouble keeping this thing on the shelves or wherever the hell it lives. That's right. It sells out online quite quickly. And in fact, there are entire Facebook groups and communities dedicated to trying to suss out when is the next skelly drop. People are trying to figure out what stores might have skelly in stock. (laughs) So as you document in your story, this is America. This is the land of excess. (laughs) So people look at skeletons and they say what? Like how many do they really want? I spoke with one woman who back in 2020 bought 10 and (laughs) (laughs) finds uses for all of them. She's a real estate agent. So sometimes in or every October, she decorates her homes that she's selling with a fleet of different skeletons, not always these 12 foot skellies, but when she's able to put a skelly inside and stand it up, that tells you a lot about the height of the ceiling in that property. So she feels like it has a lot of visual heft in that way, but also she has at least one in October sitting in her daughter's cafeteria. I have seen displays online where people will have an entire volleyball game of skellies. So (laughs) that's a lot of 12 foot skeletons, you know, at $300, I think for, you know, this big 12 foot thing, you know, that's can be affordable for, for many families, but I mean, when we're talking about 10 skellies, I mean, we're talking about thousands of dollars in Halloween decoration purchases. Although she might have taken advantage of one of those buy four skellies, get the fifth one free sales. (laughs) Um, You know, online, you can only purchase one skelly at a time because they know that it's such a hot ticket item. You know, the idea of skelly indoors. It's like one of those urban folk tales, you know, like about the, the babysitter <laughs> the babysitter who calls the parents in the Adirondacks and says, well, everything's fine here, except I'm a little creeped out by that 12-foot skeleton that you have in, in your right. living room, and the children <laughs> seem upset by it, too. And the mother says, Molly, grab the children and run. We don't own a 12-foot skeleton. Yeah. But, I mean, but to your point of, you know, Skelly perhaps being a part of these, like, very scary stories, my sense is that part of the appeal with something like Skelly is that unlike a lot of these other Halloween decorations, which are genuinely frightening, there's almost something like campy and hilarious about this skeleton. And, you know, pardon the pun, but it's a bare bones decoration. So you can decide like, oh, I'm having um, a haunted swamp theme. 
put a 12 foot skeleton in it. Maybe you're having more of a graveyard situation. Of course, a 12 foot skeleton works. I spoke with someone who was doing a very, you know, on trend Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey display. And there was Skelly in a beautiful glittery outfit. So I think that this is the kind of decoration that works with different themes. And now you can even see skellies year round. Some people don't even want to take them down. You know, you put a little Santa, or not a little, you put a big Santa hat on Skelly and suddenly it's a Christmas decoration. So there's a lot of flexibility <laughs> when it comes to this decoration. And in three years, it seems to have been going quite strong in terms of the fervor people have for for wanting to buy and use Skelly. Well, also, I don't know if we've said this yet, but people start buying these things in April because that's when they're available. And so the temptation... You know, I mean, I don't think it doesn't really scream Easter at me, but I mean, I can understand how people might want to get going pretty fast anyway. Yeah. So in April, Home Depot had a kind of flash sale, like a halfway to Halloween sale. And that was almost to like titillate their favorite customers, right? Of being like, we haven't forgotten about you. Like, you know, you probably haven't forgotten about Skelly. Now, I will say this year, and this has been true in years past, there are rumors running rampant online that this is going to be the last year of Skelly. Like this is, you know, this is your final chance. Home Depot played pretty coy with me when I asked them about it. They were like, you know, we haven't made our decisions for next year yet. So you'll just have to stay posted. Candidly, I would be somewhat surprised given what a success Skelly's been. I spoke with the head of holiday decor at Home Depot. And even he, I mean, he couldn't believe just how much Skelly has seemed to resonate with people over the years. So I would be surprised if this was our our last year of Skelly, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really old. I went through Paul McCartney is dead. This is there's gonna be more Skellies. Um, yeah. <laughs> so and I think you said something earlier that I think is really important and really interesting and very true, which is that there's yeah. something a little like I think there's a reason why there isn't an equivalent matching craze for 12 foot tall evil clowns because that's too freaking you just don't want that evil clown around all the time there's something about the skeleton you can kind of get used to them and and live with them right and it can be a little bit goofy right like there's something so funny about this 12 foot skeleton with this wide-eyed stare i don't think that it's the sort of thing that scares kids i did a story last year about intense halloween decor one thing that that we found is like you don't want to gross people out And Skelly really (laughs) manages to kind of make a big statement, literally a humongous 12-foot statement, without frightening people. There's something kind of like friendly about him. And with a lot of the other animatronics you see, they're gory, they're genuinely frightening. To your point about the clowns, I think a lot of people have things about clowns. They just don't like them. And Halloween is really can be fun for the whole family. And you don't want to have the kind of display that, kids are running away from in tears and are, you know, haunted for years about. (laughs) And I mean, to all of those points you just made, I mean, there have been efforts because everybody wants to figure out the next Skelly. And so there are efforts to have ghosts and kind of pumpkin headed colossuses. And in my neighborhood, I don't think this was in your story. And, oh. But in my neighborhood, there's a 12-foot-high kind of scary-looking scarecrow wielding a scythe. But I don't think any of these things has quite – it's like everybody wants Skelly. People don't want the right. ghost or the clown or I mean, other things that have not sold well so far. The 12-foot Mitt Romney, 
the <laughs> twelve foot data analytics guy and the twelve foot uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. None of those are selling well. But um, yeah. but there's a way in which like you don't want the. I mean, they they really there really isn't another a next big thing. It's still this big thing, right? Right. I mean, there have been certainly Home Depot has been releasing other very large seasonal decorations. The Inferno is one I think of that's kind of like halfway between Skelly and an overripe pumpkin with a kind of scary pumpkin head. But again, I mean, there's and that sold quite well in that it's sold out. They they declined to give exact sales figures. But, you know, I think, again, there's less flexibility with decorations like that. They also had a Nightmare Before Christmas themed 13 foot animatronic this year. But you know, then you're having a Nightmare Before Christmas themed display. Skelly is really kind of fits any mood. And as we've learned over the years, any holiday, I also do think that coming out in 2020, when people were feeling maybe bored, depressed, any number of things, it really struck at a time where it resonated with people in a way where everything else is like, you know, the follow up to Skelly. But but Skelly was the first. I do have to say one thing about all of this stuff, including yeah. Skelly and certainly the uh, 12-foot-tall evil scarecrow with the scythe. And to a certain <laughs> degree, some of the things that preceded this, were, which were more kind of blow-up-y but animatronic, you know, Frankensteins Ooh. and cats that would hiss and arch their backs and stuff like that. I just want to say on behalf of everybody like me who's walking a 70-pound dog at 11 o'clock at night, this is triggering. <laughs> <laughs> to dogs. <laughs> and I always feel kind of bad for the people who put it out because I'm walking my dog at 11 o'clock at night and he freaks out and starts barking his head off like there's, you know, a Martian invasion. And uh, these people are probably trying to sleep, but then they were kind of asking for it too. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly I think that there are a lot of holidays in which dogs end up suffering, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, Halloween is one of them. Right. The major one I think of always is Fourth of July. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that if, you know, if you're deck, if you're constantly hearing loud barking around your house right around Halloween, it might have to do with your decor. Yeah. No. And I should say also that, I mean, my dog got used to it eventually. And now mm. now the question is, can I make sure he doesn't pee on the neighbor's 12 foot high scarecrow? But because yeah. he wants to make <laughs> friends with it. And that's how he does that. So, yeah, I mean, I, do you ever wonder, like, what what happens when people from other countries come here? And just drive by all these lawns that have this. We've become very excessive about Halloween decorations. Yes. I think that overall, there's been holiday decoration creep, right? I mean, (laughs) decorations are just happening for longer and they're more intense. And certainly, I think the biggest benefactor of that creep is Halloween. I mean, Mm. I remember a time when I feel like there just wasn't that much Halloween decoration. And it's like, you can't just have Skelly, right? Because if you have Skelly, but you don't have really cool lighting to set Skelly off in the best possible way, then it's like, what are you doing with your Skelly? You're squandering it. So I think that I see a lot of times very intricate displays with, it seems like theatrical level production values, which for me, I mean, it's very impressive and exciting to walk by. I really enjoy it. I guess <laughs> this is a moment where I should disclose that right now I've got some mums and kind of cool looking fantasy pumpkins on my stoop. But I, I don't personally have a skelly or one of those big spiders or really any of those major Halloween decorations. But I will say 
I really do love walking by them. Yeah. I think that they're a blast. <laughs> you, you get to just enjoy everybody else's and save money in the process. Yeah, I think the, yeah, the, the exactly. days of like just getting a pumpkin and carving a face in it is just like, it's, what are you, living in 1910 or something? You know, we can't do that anymore. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. Like when I had I had these pumpkins on my soup and I was like, wow, am I so lame? Like I thought these were pretty cool pumpkins, but like <laughs> I'm not doing it up. Nope. So yeah. <laughs> well, you certainly impressed us anyway with your knowledge of the subject. Rachel Curzius, great Thank to have you. you. Reporter from The Home You Own at The Washington Post. We have to say good Goodbye now. We have to say goodbye. Be very afraid. Apparently it's fun to do that. And enjoy your holiday. Happy Halloween.